If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And friends, today is an episode you are not going to want to miss. We will be speaking with Perrine Kohlhaas about fixing your back office while still maintaining your organization's culture. Because great nonprofits, and this this might not be intuitive and some people might roll their eyes, but great nonprofits have great back offices. It is efficient financial, IT, HR, and other operations that enable our organizations to provide great services, to be great employers, and frankly, to make the impact that they want to have. The media, though, has made us all start to believe that there's a trade-off between efficiency and a positive culture. But I believe that those two are not mutually exclusive. And that's why I invited Perrine Kohlhaas to come on the podcast and speak to us about ways that we can really make our back office, those administrative structures, efficient while still holding on to the culture that makes our organization unique and effective. Perrine is currently the Chief Operating Officer at Co-op Careers, which is a national workforce development nonprofit. Before moving to the nonprofit sector, she had 13 years of experience working in financial services in both New York and in London. And I did not know this for the longest time, but apparently, if you work in financial services in Europe or the United States, those are the two places to work, and it probably means you're doing big and important work. Before she started her career in finance. I do want to share with you that she was born in India, grew up in New Jersey, also graduated from Villanova, and then got a master's degree at London Business School. She's returned and lives in Jersey again. And I will just also share with you that a quick Google search will show lots of articles on nonprofit blogs and guests on podcasts, etc. Perrine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dolph. I'm happy to be here. Well, again, I'm so glad you're here, and I want to start with kind of a level-setting question. Back office means different things to different people. What's a back office? 
Yeah. So other words for back office that you might hear when you think about nonprofits are support functions, support staff, central office, central administration, if you're working in a school district. And really what that means is what I like to call the oil or the grease in the wheels of the bicycle. So we provide mainly the functions of finance, IT, technology, data, operations, um, talent, HR, human assets. They're called different things in different places. But like I mentioned, we are really the thing that makes the wheels go round. And at co-op, that specifically means the departments of talent, as we call our HR department, because we believe in our human assets being the number one priority that we invest in. Um, Technology, which includes both our Salesforce infrastructure and all of the other things that you consider traditional IT, finance and operations, as it relates to both our program and our central office staff. So it sounds like the back office is everything an organization needs to survive that's not direct services related to its mission. Correct. You nailed it on the head. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Originally, I was thinking I might jump to another question, but I got to jump to this Department of Talent because over the last few years, I've been hearing organizations more in the for-profit sector than the nonprofit sector referring to staff or team as talent. Can you say a little bit about that transition at co-op? Yeah. So co-op, actually, it's never really been a transition as it relates to we've never called our traditional HR department and HR department. So while we understand that people are our greatest assets, um, people is what we originally called this department. Where it got a little confusing is that we, as we've grown, we've had more and more team members become people managers. And so it got a little confusing on who is a people manager as in working in a direct service team as having a direct report versus who was on the people team. And so when I arrived, one of the big name changes we made was the shift from people to talent. And it's really related to this concept of career pathways and talent development. So what does it look like for co-op to succeed for not just our constituents, but also to be in an organization and an employer that people want to work at, people are committed to, regardless of if they're working for us, partnered with us, or an alumni of working for us. And so to me, talent is something you develop, it's something you cultivate. And so having that group be the talent team was a no-brainer when I got here. This has caused me to think about a couple other questions. So people manager, was that the the person's title or was that their role? Yeah. So um, every job and part of what a talent team um, does is support with processes as they relate to performance, as they relate to career pathways and all the things I've just mentioned about developing as a person and a professional. Um, and where we started uh, when I began was that our le- like titles, if you call them, so in other places, especially in the for-profit sector, you might hear terms like vice president, director, executive director, analyst, associate. Those are some of the financial service terms. We had managers, senior managers, associate directors, directors, and onwards and upwards. And so it was very confusing because it was a title. It also described a role. It also described a department. And so we spent a lot of time as part of the talent work to figure out how do we bring clarity to this while also maintaining the culture that I had inherited when I got here, which was this culture of collaboration, connection, and really like developing and supporting each other, both as an organization as and as individuals personally and professionally. And that's one of the reasons I really wanted us to have that conversation. How do you make those transitions for greater efficiency and, frankly, greater effectiveness without losing your soul? Yeah, I think there is something that's really important that I wanted to, to, to bring at the very forefront of this conversation, which is that 
Most people view culture as something that belongs to a certain person, oftentimes a leader, like a chief operating officer or a chief culture officer. Sometimes it's like the chief diversity officer or to a team, like to HR or talent or people or the diversity team. But really at co-op, we believe culture is something that belongs to everyone. And so to me, when I think about building the back office, the support team that's going to allow co-op to continue to provide the direct services we do currently to our students, to the 10,000 alumni we want to reach by 2025 and the 100,000 alumni we want to reach afterwards, the most important part for me is to make sure that my team, we call them team, we intentionally try to avoid the words staff, employee, frontline, backline, because we are a team, right? Um, so we use team member, we use teammate as the way that we describe our our um, our colleagues. And then the other thing we really do intentionally is we use functions as opposed to departments because we have a lot of cross-functional collaboration and cross-functional is something that we want to be a part of our culture and to be a part of our community and our connection. And the way that we've always approached it is that culture is something we all own and we can't help lead it from the perspective of the back office functions if it's not a feedback loop. So our culture is one of feedback and it's one where everyone is involved. And so before we make any changes, whether it's a small change, like the changes to our expense policy, or a big change, like the tenure of how long you have to work to get a promotion, or an, a monstrosity of a change, like our entire CRM system, we're making sure that the directors of each of my functions is having a feedback loop. They're having a conversation with the leaders of other functions, with the team members of other functions who need to use these tools and resources on a day-to-day -day basis, incorporate these practices and processes in their everyday delivery of direct service, and ensure that there's a feedback loop so that we're not making assumptions and we're constantly understanding what is it like to be in the direct service space and how can we make that work better, easier, and more efficient. And was that feedback loop there when you started at Co-op? Yes, I think to some degree, it's always been there naturally. Co-op has always been an organization that has a culture of feedback. What we have been able to bring to the table through myself and my functional leaders and my functional teams is the ability to really codify that and operationalize it in a way that is meaningful with tools and resources that allow transparency, clarity, and really like the, the purpose of that transparency and clarity is for folks to have tools to be able to refer back to to continue their future growth. So you literally just walked down the path I was hoping we were going to walk down, which is how did you operationalize it? What does that feedback loop actually look like? Yeah. So some of it just happens naturally in terms of ensuring that all of our teams are able to set up certain systems in terms of like just management, for example, of day-to-day -day activities, management of day-to-day -day relationships in a way that we provide some best practices. Um, so I'll give you a few examples. Our talent development process, which is really what other people, especially for-profit companies, call the performance review process, right? Wait, hold on, wait, wait, I, I got to stop, got to hold the phone for a second. I think that's really important and I don't, I don't want us to lose that. You don't call them performance reviews. You call them talent development process. Mm -hmm. I get that's routine for you. That's mind-blowing. And so I just had to stop because that to me is really an incredible idea. Yeah. And I will say, I can't take credit for that. Like I have to give credit where it's due. Our um, amazing senior director of talent has always called it the talent development process or the performance development process because it's about growth for us. And that culture of growth, that culture of feedback is something that I very fortunately inherited and was one of the things that drew me to co-op. 
um, when I moved here from my previous organization was this idea that they, they lacked the systems and the infrastructure and the operations to make it clear and quickly executable and replicable and scalable. But the, the sort of desire for those things was there and innate in the culture of the day-to-day work of, of the teams that were already here. Okay, but so I need to know more. So you just said you created a talent development process that is clear and replicable. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so the very first thing is like, I think you have to decide if you're going to invest in a system, really, to do the work. As we know, technology is a huge part of our lives nowadays. We're probably on screen way more than we want to be off screen, much less than we need to be. Um, and for us, like we didn't really have a system. Lots of nonprofits will uh, sort of relate when I say this. Performance review processes often happen in Google Sheets or Google Docs. And there's like every so often where someone reminds you from the talent department that you need to fill out this document and have a conversation with your direct report, with your manager, with your leader, whatever that might be. And so what we had, what we did initially is invest in a system called Lattice. And one of the th- reasons we like Lattice is because they allow us to benchmark to other organizations. They have a community of best practices. And most importantly, they believe in talent development. They themselves call themselves a performance development tool. And what Lattice does is it really creates the infrastructure we need to build what works for our team. They have lots of customizability and flexibility. They allow you to have like pilots of different things that work with your team with their key goals being how do you retain, develop, and promote from within the talent that you have inside of your organization. And why that was really beneficial for our organization is that with so many functions, especially direct service functions, doing so many different things, there was a lack of communication as to what defines high performance, low performance. How do you know if the work you're doing every single day is moving the company forward, is moving our mission forward and the objectives that we're trying to do in terms of workforce development and providing upward mobility to our students and constituents. And so Lattice provides the framework for that. And that framework is really simple. You start at the very top level. What is your mission? And what are the objectives of your company at the very high strategic level? And then break that down into a year, into a a month, into a day, into a goal cycle. What does that look like? And then break that across the broad spectrum that is co-op. What does that mean for our recruiting team, our program team, our alumni team, our partnerships team? And how in one system can you see the interconnectedness of the work that we all do together? And then the second half of that is how do you as an individual fit into this broader ecosystem that is co-op careers? And it became the avenue in which once that was all very clear and transparent, you could then have really meaningful conversations on a periodic basis using Lattice as your tool for Uh, facilitating that communication with your manager to say, hey, I'm missing my goal here. It looks like it's going to affect this company objective. Can we talk about some of the challenges I've had? Maybe those challenges are external, but maybe those challenges are internal and it opens up an opportunity for you to have professional development, mentorship, coaching, whatever that might mean to make you more successful and in sort of like organically co-op more successful. It's interesting you say that because I've noticed that the most successful organizations that have just completed a strategic planning project are typically the ones that take that strategic plan and then assign those goals, those, you know, the the annual objectives and then the quarterly tactics to specific people and make that part of the talent development process. So it's interesting you say that because as you were describing that, that's exactly what I was thinking. I will say we did one cycle of this last year. We learned 
so much. And this goes back to that culture of feedback. You know, we tried to do monthly goal updates and we got really quick feedback from the team that was like, this just seems like a colossal waste of time. Um, And so this year we're going to be doing quarterly goal updates and actually asking for accountability from managers and from teammates to say, let's stick to that quarterly conversation. Not because we want you to as the talent team or that you have to do it in sort of preparation for your year end performance development process, but because it's great, it's good for you. It's good for your growth, your development. And ultimately it's good for all of us because it lets us course correct in the middle of the year, especially if we're not tracking towards our goals so that we're not finding out about this when it's too late to do something and sort of the cat's already out of the bag. It allows us to be a two-way conversation and Lattice is really the tool that we invested in. And there's lots of great performance development you know, systems out there. Lattice is the one that works for us as an organization to really just like facilitate those authentic conversations that hopefully lead to success on all fronts. And in terms of operations, I'm also curious, I know we've spoken some about how you've solidify that feedback loop. But you mentioned in this case, okay, you were doing monthly updates and you kind of heard from team members, hey, th- this is not workable. This this is a waste of time. How did you get that feedback? Had you sent out a survey? Was it just a groundswell where everyone's like, we're not going to do this anymore to their managers? Like, how did that feedback come to you? Yeah. So again, being an organization that's always had a culture of feedback, it was a bit more disjointed, I think, um, previous to since we've added some of the back office teams. And I would say the two most important tools we have at our disposal is one, we have our talent team. So our talent team is always accessible. We use Slack, we use email, we have a dedicated talent support email box as well that's constantly monitored that allows our team to have trust in the process and trust that the feedback that they're providing us is is not falling on deaf ears. So you can reach out to my talent director. The other thing is that the talent team has, we have a specialized talent team, so you can Sometimes HR can be set up in a way that it's a lot of generalists and sometimes they're specialists. So our team is set up specifically with individuals that have specializations. So I have folks that are doing acquisition, others that are doing development, others that are doing more of the operational work. And so each of these team members is always accessible and really clear to the rest of our team what their purpose is in the talent world and how feedback on certain things that talent is doing can get back to them. So that's like one really important thing that has always been at co-op and I think is great, which is that we are collegial and we are collaborative and there's this great sense of community and connection that makes it really comfortable for somebody to just say, hey, Ariana, our senior director of talent, I want to give you some feedback on how I felt about this process last year. And Ariana will have that 10, 15, 20 minute conversation or engage in whatever that feedback loop might look like on Slack. The more formalized way that we do that is we do post sort of launch surveys. So whenever we launch something new, like the talent development process last year, we'll always have an opportunity for a survey to go out where people can provide both sort of Likert scale feedback as well as open-ended feedback. And we combine that with our quarterly engagement surveys for the entire organization. So we send out like a full survey at the end of every year. Our one for 2022 is currently active um, with our team right now. And it, it really uses like the Gallup 12. It uses um, some benchmarking questions from Lattice that really lets us understand like, how are we doing organizationally? And a good portion of that is around operations and tools and resources and infrastructure so that we constantly have this feedback from the team in a more formalized way to say, okay, these are the things we put in place that are working. These are the things that are not, and we need to improve on. 
And so how many questions are on that annual survey, roughly? Yeah. So the reason we only do the annual survey once and then the follow-ups are not as long is um, it's 40 to 50 questions. And I was shocked, not surprised, shocked, I will I will say, to actually have um, attended a webinar with our director of talent that Lattice put on that indicated sort of like survey best practices from their swath of cross-industry knowledge and data that they have. They've actually said that as far as engagement surveys go from a culture and organizational effectiveness perspective, if you do them once a year, the longer they are, the better. The shorter surveys get people not really thoughtfully thinking about what they're doing. But if you make it really clear from the beginning, this is going to be a 50-question survey This is your opportunity to really tell us what you think, fully anonymized, fully vetted and and sort of summarized, but also these open-ended options to just say your piece fully anonymously. People really will sit down and give you 30 minutes of what they really think about your organization. It's interesting because I was going to ask you that question. The average time to take it, is it really only 30 minutes with 50 questions or is it an hour or two hours? So they say 30 minutes if you do the Likert scale meaningfully and then don't have too much fully positive or usually fully negative feedback to fill into the open-ended sections. So I imagine, you know, in as far as like NPS score goes, if you're more of a net promoter of your organization in that moment, you might be able to finish that survey in 30 to 40 minutes because there is this sort of inkling to give lots of positive scores when you're feeling happy about the organization you're in. And then on the flip side, if you're in a space of, not exactly loving where you're working, you know, and wanting to share a little bit more feedback, it might take you a bit longer. But that is why the open ended questions are there. And that is why they're optional is that if you are in that negative space, we want to hear you. Those are the people we want to hear from, right? Because those are the people that have the most amount of valuable information for us to be able to grow and improve. And so you just use a term I've heard, and now I'm going to acknowledge to thousands of my friends who download this podcast that I actually don't know what that term means. Net promoter, yeah. Um, tell me tell me what that is so I know what you just told yeah, me. Yeah, lots of organizations will look at this. Um, I've worked at three different types of nonprofits and it's looked at differently everywhere. But I will say, generally speaking, what net promoter score is that you have 100 people in your organization, for example. Some of them are going to love you. Some of them are going to not love you. And some of them are going to be indifferent. And so what a net promoter score does is it takes sort of a value from call it one to five, where three will be that neutral four and five will be your promoters, one and two will be your detractors. And it takes all of the questions that you've asked and assigns you with sort of what's a net promoter score for each of these questions and values, like how many people in this bucket that you've just asked think that you're doing relatively well and would promote the thing that you've just said versus not doing well and detract or middle of the ground, they're neutral, they're not sure yet. Um, And then most engagement surveys include something called an ENPS score, which is an employer net promoter score. And it's almost always the same like question, which is some version of, I would promote this company to my friends, or I would want to work to this company, or I would recommend working for this company to a family or friend member. Those scores can range from negative 100 to positive 100, with zero being the like middle ground. And most people think if you get a zero, that's terrible. Um, It's actually not. Um, You will be shocked to hear if you Google um, just generally like what's a good net promoter score for all industries holistically. I think the number is something like 40 to 50 is considered excellent 
for nonprofits that we know are struggling with resources and burnout and so many other challenges that we face uniquely as a nonprofit industry, it's closer to a 10 to 30 is considered wow. excellent. And the first two places I worked, I don't think we ever hit positive territory. Um, okay. And so, wow. yeah, it's these are really important, I think, again, operational metrics that are not part of direct service or often never looked at by teams that are providing direct service, but are so important for a nonprofit to think about when they think about things like burnout, retention, turnover, and the cost to a nonprofit to keep addressing those issues that mm-hmm. tend to bear their ugly faces in the nonprofit space. Right. I also just want to say, I get your point. I mean, so if your net promoter score is over zero, you're in the top half. And if your net promoter score is over 50, you're in the top quarter. You're in the top quartile, really. So, okay. I, and so I get that. Like, yeah, you'd rather be in the top decile. You'd rather, rather be in the top 10%, but being the top half isn't bad. Yep. And it swings, right? It also swings with like the general sway of of the world and, and all of those things. Um, but for me, I think what's been really important at co-op is that the team has been hungry for these types of of metrics and being able to operationalize them. We've used talent as an example today, but I can think of similar examples in the finance space and the technology space as it relates to co-op is that there's always been this culture of feedback and this culture of like wanting to grow and develop that I've been very fortunate that through these different methods, like the feedback loop, like the constantly sort of learning and experimenting and growing um, uh, approach to building systems and processes, we've been able to add lots of layers to the back office at co-op without having to fundamentally shift our culture or make any sort of drastic changes that could be negatively perceived. So I kind of want to switch real quick, just so we can talk on a meta level. I've loved the conversation about talent. And I also like that you're saying, you know, there's other ways we could apply this to finance and IT, et cetera. But so I'd kind of like to switch because I, I read an article that you'd written, I think in Nonprofit Pro, and it was not the title of the article, but but it's what really stood out to me. And every time you said Lattice, the cloud-based software that you're using around some talent management and, and development, I would think about this article. And you said something like, going for the best solution, not the cheapest solution, is important. Yeah. Yeah. And I said that because I have worked at three or four nonprofits as full-time. I've worked as a consultant at several other nonprofits, national and local. And I think the biggest mistake that most people make when they think about building out their infrastructure is this thing. And I listened to one of the other podcasts that you had in advance of this, just to like prep myself. And one of them was about like fundraising and the challenge of what the fundraising landscape looks like for nonprofits and how it is so inequitable and has a lot of power dynamics and other types of things. And unfortunately, because of that, so many nonprofits try to skimp on indirect costs, right? On not direct service. And sometimes it's not that they're trying, it's that they have to because of their funding model. It is so hard to get a general operations grant versus a program grant. We're very fortunate at Co-op that we have funders that fully understand the like breadth and scope of what we are trying to do and the disruptors we are trying to be in the workforce development space to create opportunities for so many communities that don't have them that I have the luxury to be able to say, I want to make the best choice for co-op and not always the cheapest choice. And don't get me wrong, every day I make trade-offs. That's the other piece that I think is really important that people miss, which is that it doesn't mean you get to spend all the money 
It also doesn't mean that you don't have any money to spend. It means that you're spending your money based on ROI, return on investment, right? And what does that look like, not just in terms of every dollar that you spend, but every piece of staff time you spend on vetting something, every piece of time that your team has to use it, how easy, how hard, how quick, how slow is it for your team to adopt, to implement, how much extra is there? That whole package helps you determine if the cost that you have of a system, which is way more than the price you see on a website for a vendor or software, if that cost is worth it for your organization. And that number, that ROI number, will change over time as your organization grows and shifts and transcends and transforms. And so it's always important to like, not just when you choose a new system, to every so often also be evaluating. Like Lattice works for us right now. Three to five years from now, for a different organization, it might not. And it's on me as the COO and, and through my directors to say, are these systems that we have still working for our teams? And if not, what's the better solution? It might not be the cheaper one. Maybe it's the cheaper one, but it might not be. But is that the better one? Then we should be shifting there. And so that does cause me to think about, you know, you mentioned that you're going through kind of this process and asking yourself, what's the financial cost? How much time is it going to take from team members in terms of implementation? Uh, What other resources is it going to take? How do you factor in the possible ROI. And then I'll use Lattice as an example. And so, for example, you know, perhaps as you're thinking about Lattice, you're thinking, gosh, if we could, if we could increase our talent retention rate by 10%, that would save us X in recruitment costs and onboarding costs and downtime, et cetera. How do you factor those things in? Yeah. So I think it's a combination of both quantitative and qualitative, and it's not something that I can do alone. Um, so we really start at the very basic quantitative level, which is like, what is the cost, right? What is the cost per employee of a system like Lattice, for example? Um, What is the feedback that we've been getting? And this is where that sort of like promoter detractor score is really helpful. So I can't assign a currency or monetary value to being a net promoter or net detractor score. But what I can say is like Lattice costs X. Here's my comparable of what a different system or no system might look like that is certain amount cheaper or a certain amount more expensive. Now let's add the team feedback in there, how much from Lattice is like, let's say Lattice is $10 cheaper. How much from that $10 cheaper do I think that this amount of team morale, you know, team time, uh, director effort, if directors have to do extra work to make Lattice happen, like those types of things, how much from that $10 does it detract? It's not a finite number, right? It's a feel. And it's a feel that you happen that can happen because you have a constant feedback loop because you're always asking people, how do you feel about something? How do you not feel about something? And I will say the biggest, sometimes we like totally forget because it's just is so in your face that we forget that it's a metric. The biggest indicator of whether something is working or not is how much your team uses it. So that's like a great place to start, right? Like we're doing a systems audit right now in the technology space. And what my new director of technology is doing is just looking in and like trying to get reports that show usage just to be like we've got all these tools we pay for them maybe we need to continue paying for them maybe we don't let's just start to see like how much does somebody log in you might have 50 tools and use 10 of them to me what that says is great doc doesn't need the other 40 so let's figure out how much those are costing and then before we shut them down let's go back to Dolph and be like hey you aren't using 40 out of the 50 things we gave you let's find out why Is it because that's just because you use them once a year and, but they're so important for that one time a year that you use them or is it something else? And then let's 
aggregate all of that information and make data-driven decisions that make our teams and our systems and our processes and ultimately our organization more efficient and more effective. So before we pivot to the off the map question, I've got one final question for you around making operations more efficient. A lot of my friends are small. And when I say small, I mean one staff member to five staff member organizations. And I know you're at a much larger organization than that. And so do you have any tips or advice for a person leading a very small organization around how they can create a more efficient operational system without the organization losing really its soul and its mission? Yeah. I think the biggest thing I've learned here is that the solution isn't always to grow and the solution isn't always to build in-house. I think that over the last probably two to three decades, specifically the last 10 years, because of the advent of technology and the tools that we have available to us, there are so many, not just systems, systems can be expensive and implementation is hard, but also services, service providers out there. So a a concrete example for co-op, even though we are the size that we are, our financial in-house infrastructure is lagging way behind an organization should be of our size. And this last year, what I learned the very hard way is that I tried to bring it in-house. I wasn't able to make the right hires because the talent market is tough right now. I don't, I'm not a corporate. I can't just throw money at the problem. Um, And what I didn't do, and I am doing for this year, and I'm already so grateful, even just four weeks into our relationship with them, is I found a consulting firm that works purely with nonprofits in helping them fix up their finance space. And then they either stay in a maintenance capacity at an affordable rate for the duration that I want them, potentially perpetuity, or they transition out as you bring in in in-house talent. And so I think that's something that we're forgetting is that there are so many service providers out there that are affordable and can support your operational needs that the answer isn't always to build in-house or figure out the in-house solution. Sometimes you have to look externally. I love that. And I think especially for small organizations, you know, maybe they can't afford a director of talent, but, you know, they could afford a consultant who'd give them five or 10 hours a month and maybe that's all they need for recruitment and retention. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. I love that. I love, love, love that. Thank you. Well, Perrine, I I promise we're going to pivot to the off the map question. And so here it is. I know that you and I share the Jersey Shore, but I was surprised to learn that you are a guide at the Jersey Shore and I want to know more. Yeah. So I grew up in New Jersey. I was actually born in India, but my parents ultimately settled here. Um, I love New Jersey so much that I moved back here and my kids are going to the same school district that I did. But for a small part of my youth, I will say, um, much younger, a few decades younger than how old I am now, I spent a few years at the beautiful Jersey Shore in a town called Belmar, um, not that far north from where the Jersey Shore TV show was taped. And I was a full-fledged, what they like to call themselves, guidettes. Um, And so we spent a lot of time fist pumping, which is the the proverbial Jersey Shore, put your fist in the air and pump to some really heavy techno music. And what I really loved about my time, it was two summers in Belmar, one summer in Point Pleasant. That time that I had was like a lot of people in one house, the cheapest we could. It was probably the most fun carefree time that I ever had in my life. 
Um, it was during my time in financial services. And so I had a hard job that was really stressful and just never really had an opportunity to have fun. And I think why I put that as like the three things people might not learn about me if they did a Google search um, or the three interesting facts about you is that when I went there, these were people that like normally might seem like outsiders. They might seem like they weren't fitting in with the crowd, but they were authentic and they were genuine and they enjoyed life and they were just living their best selves for the time that I was down there. And it was really that feeling of like, this job I have, this stress I have in financial services, it's all about conforming and fitting and being this like successful financial services, Wall Street person. And it was really the Jersey Shore and that Guidette life that was like, maybe there's something more. Maybe I can be my authentic self. Maybe I can have fun. And I think in my mind, when I think back to those days, it may have been the seeds or the crumbs that led me to the shift over into the nonprofit space where I find there's a lot more authenticity, a lot more genuity, and a lot more fist pumping. Oh my gosh, Perrine, that is awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm incredibly grateful. And I'm also grateful that you would come on and just share with our friends who are listening today ways that that their organization can be more efficient, honestly, be more effective, and, and still maintain who they are and maintain their culture. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. And my friends, you know, I want to make sure that you know how to reach our guest today. And so you can go to coopcareers.org. You can also go to our show notes at Successful Nonprofits, where we're going to link to both coopcareers.org and also to Perrine's LinkedIn page. Additionally, if you found this episode useful, there's two that I think you will really enjoy. The first is episode 180, Creating a Strong Back Office with Sean Hale. Sean, as you may recall, is a professional um, operations consultant and also, by the way, does fractional COO work, which is one of the things Perrine has mentioned. Maybe you don't need someone full-time. Maybe you only need someone five hours a week. Well, you know, Sean is someone who does that work, and we had a great conversation about creating a strong back office, and a big part of it was about ways you could outsource some things. So if you're one of those smaller organizations, consider episode 180. I also want you to think about episode 70, which is really, you have to go in the Wayback Machine for that. That was probably, we probably did that one five or six years ago, but it was a culture on purpose with Mackenzie Wren. And in that episode, Wren really helped talk about ways that you can create a purposeful, intentional culture for your organization. And if you're doing that along with operational efficiencies, you're going to be in a very good place. So listeners, I always ask, if you are a fan of this show, please help me out and help me out by doing two things, rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing it with friends. That helps the podcast grow, and it helps us meet our mission of helping your organization and all organizations thrive. That, my friend, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight that will help your nonprofit thrive. And it's not efficient, and it does not even feel like operations, but the lawyers make me say it. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. And neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. And guess what that means? That means you should not rely on it for tax, legal, accounting advice. Please, please, for all things that you value, including your organization and your own assets. If you need tax, legal, or accounting advice, 
go and find a qualified, licensed professional. And if you are not sure what type of professional you might need, you can reach out to me. I can maybe help you figure that out. Or if you don't know of someone in your area, and I happen to, I'm happy to make a referral.